0: We wish to call your attention for a little while this evening, beloved, to the Word of God as it is found in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. In the immediate context, and I have in mind especially the verses 8 and 9 that precede our text, the Apostle emphasizes the truth that we are saved by grace only, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I take it that the Apostle does not mean to say here, when he says our salvation is not of works, that he uh, wishes to negate, to destroy the whole idea of work. Uh, There are those, of course, who interpret the Apostle that way, they even go on to point out that there was a controversy between the Apostle Paul and James who insisted that faith must be in evidence in works. And they try to get the Apostle Paul to be in opposition to James and insist on it that Paul would have nothing of works in any sense of the word. I do not believe that that is the case, and in fact, our text for tonight, on the very surface of it, would certainly show that there is in the mind of the apostle a place for works, particularly good works. Uh, That's what we just saw in the text. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before prepared in order that we should walk in them. So it should become very evident to you and me that the apostle here does not mean to destroy work in a final sense of the word, but what he is emphasizing in the preceding context is the fact that Our works can never be the ground or the basis for our salvation. Our salvation is grounded in the work of Christ and in the work of Christ alone. Not any work of man or even the work of Christ with the work of man. mustn't have that either. You know, there are those synergists today who want us to believe that we are God's little helpers. We work together with God. We cooperate with God in the matter of our salvation. And that, of course, is also contrary to the word of God itself. The apostle here emphatically stresses the truth. That we are saved by grace alone, without any work that we perform toward our salvation. And therefore, our salvation, which is by grace, is from beginning to end a work of God. And the apostle tells us in verse 8 that it is a gift of God. And that means not only that we are saved by grace, but that we are also saved by grace through faith. Faith also is a gift of God. It's not of ours. And this, of course, is a most fundamental truth that must firmly be established. Salvation is of the Lord. And of him alone. Now in our text for tonight, you have a further explanation of this truth. That is, of course, indicated in that little word for, that conjunction for that introduces our text. For we are his workmanship. The Apostle Paul especially likes to use that little word, and he uses it in different ways. So it is necessary to determine how he uses it also here. Sometimes he uses that little word to indicate a ground or reason for that which he has been uh, trying to uh, set forth to explain Uh, The word for is used quite often by Paul in his letter to the Romans, where uh, very logically he sets one thing after another in logical order. And that word for very often in that epistle uh, serves as an indicator of the ground or reason for what the apostle says after that little word. But sometimes that word also indicates uh, explanation, and that is undoubtedly the case in our text. So that when he says, for we are his workmanship, he is reflecting back to the preceding verses where he had emphasized that we are saved by grace through faith as a gift of God. It is all of God. We are His workmanship. And that latter, of course, is intended to be a further delineation and explanation of what the Apostle had been talking about in the preceding context. And if you can understand that, then our text is very clear. As you all know, that is, if you are members here, in recent weeks we have been calling attention in our Sunday evening services to various portions of the scriptures that exhort us or explain to us or are examples to us, as they were last Sunday evening, of how we are to make spiritual progress, to be spiritually minded, and to be spiritually sensitive. And tonight I want to call your attention to the words of our text, in line with that series that we have been presenting and show to you how that being God's workmanship, products of his grace, he has created us unto good works, unto a life of good works, in which also we are intelligently exhorted to see to it that we make progress. That's the idea that I have in mind in calling your attention tonight to this particular scripture. I want to speak for a little while on the basis of this text under the theme, God's Workmanship. there are three thoughts that I would like to develop in connection with this. And the first is that we have to do here with a glorious creation. In the second place, to an eternal design. By that I mean when God creates us, he does that with something in view. And we're told what that is. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's a eternal design. And finally, I would like to call your attention also to the divine purpose. Because when God designed us, he had in mind that we should fulfill a certain purpose of his, and that is expressed in the last part of the text, namely, which God has before ordained that we should walk in that. That's his purpose. So we have God's workmanship, and first of all, a glorious creation. And I use that expression advisedly because, you understand, our text suggests to us the whole idea of creation, not only in the term, we are his workmanship, but it says it literally here, created in Christ Jesus. So we're talking about creation. And of course, you cannot talk about this creation of which the Apostle is speaking in our text without also being mindful of the fact that God, in the beginning, created all things, and that that creation, too, was a most glorious creation. There was That was true of the creation in general. First of all, things did not simply spontaneously come into being of themselves, as the vain philosophy of evolution would maintain, but they were created by a divine and all-wise artificer. who put his word into every creature that he brought forth, and which he crawled forth by his mighty, omnipotent power and by his spoken word. He simply spoke. And the things that he designed should come into being, simply came into being. And each in its own order and with its own uh, significance as it fits into the entire scheme of the creation. There was nothing extraneous in it. Nothing useless. Everything had its place and its part. And its own uh, function, and its served in that creation, according to the plan and the purpose of God. And man, who was the last of the creatures that was called forth into being, was a very special creation. Was not only. Particularly formed by the hand of God out of the earth, but who was at that same, in that same operation, in that same creation, made to be a creatureal reflection of the very image of God. He was an intelligent being. He was a spiritual being. He was one who in every way, in a creatural sense, could reflect the virtues and the attributes of God. God. That's what is implied, of course, in the fact that man was created in God's image and likeness. I think i called your attention to this before, that image and likeness is really not two different things, but one is a further definition of the other. What is meant when you read in Genesis that man was created in the image and likeness of God means this, that the image, in every sense of the word, was a likeness. There are images that are not likenesses. For example, you have images of angels who have wings. Angels aren't like that at all. They don't have wings. They're spirits. But every time you see angels, and, and, and the Lord taught His m- capable men in the Old Testament when they made up the apparatus for the tabernacle and the curtains and so forth, they, they put uh, little cherry on there. This was done by men who had special wisdom, and the Spirit of God was upon them to do that. But they put little little images of angels on there. Well, now everyone knew that angels aren't like that. Those were images, but they weren't likenesses. But when God created man, He not only created an image bearer, one who could reflect the image of God, but He was a precise reflection of God. It was an image that was a likeness. And in that position, man stood at the pinnacle of creation, so to speak. He was made king under God over all of creation. And it was his purpose, his calling as God's vicegerent to interpret the word of God in all of the creation and to express it unto God. In other words, he had to bring that creation and consecrate it unto God and to his servant. But I say once more, that was a glorious creation. And that all Creation was a reflection of the wisdom and the power of God. And you understand, of course, (coughs) that the new creation or the recreation, which was the work of God that he purposed to fulfill through the fall in sin and death, and the destruction of that first world, God was going to call out of the darkness, the light, out of death, light. That first world, glorious as it may be and was, was so constituted that it could pass away, and it did. Through the sin of man, the curse of God came into that creation, and all of the creation dies and passes away, including man with it. And that first creation, glorious as it may have been, was intended to be temporal, only for a time, to serve a certain purpose. And back of that fallen creation, God had in mind, eternally, through the way of sin and grace, to realize a new creation. The first principles of which are realized through grace in God's elect, in regeneration. In regeneration, man is given... A life that cannot perish. When God created man in the first instance, he gave him a life which was, shall I say, diable, mortal, subject to death. Immediately after God created him, he said, you obey me if you don't you die and he disobeyed and he died that life that he had was to use this crude word dieable it could die and it did but the new creation or the recreation brings with it life that is Immortality, undiable, is not subject to death, and in that sense of the word, is eternal. And the same thing is true as it is in principle realized in man. Of all the creation which God is going to renew, as Paul speaks of it to Timothy, in the regeneration of all things. As man is regenerated and has the principle of new life in him through grace, so it is also going to be true of the whole creation. It is going to be regenerated. It's going to be renewed. And that creation, which embraces heaven and earth, shall be eternal. To glory creation. And notice, beloved, <clears throat> that in respect to this creation, we learn in the text that we are created in Christ Jesus. We must pay attention to that. This is not simply a case of God simply creating so many individuals loose and apart from each other. No, they are first of all created in Christ Jesus. And it's rather striking, you know, that the Word of God, when it speaks of Christ, and particularly of Christ as the head of his people, is spoken of again and again as the firstborn of creation. I read that literally in Colossians 1, verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, or of all creation. The firstborn. I get the impression... Because that firstborn, of course, is used rather promiscuously throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is always talking about the firstborn of the flock and the firstborn of the sons of men and so forth and so on. That firstborn is the first one that opens the womb. There may be many other borns that follow him, but he is the first one that opens the womb. The first of his mother. In this case, the womb is creation. The firstborn of creation. He opens the womb, so to speak. Out of which all of the creation of God, the new creation must come forth. He's the firstborn. The first one that opens the womb of the whole creation that must come forth. That's the idea of Colossians 1. I'm not going to take the time to explain the rest of the text. That's very difficult. Who is the image of the invisible God? I think that That could take a sermon all by itself, but I'm just simply reflecting on this passage because it speaks of not only of the creation, but of the firstborn of creation, of all creation. Christ is the firstborn. You have that same idea again, expressed a little differently in Revelation 3, Verse 14, where the Apostle John is writing the letter to the church of Laodicea, and he says unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Pay attention to that. The beginning of the creation of God. That's the same idea that Paul expresses in Colossians 1. The firstborn of all creatures. The beginning of the creation of God. Now mind you, this isn't something that is accidental and that happens in history after the fall. But this is what happened... In eternity, in the mind and in the counsel of God, God purposed from everlasting in his all-wise counsel to create a world that would be everlasting. So he also determined on the world that would be temporal, that would fall away through sin. No question about that. But behind That world is this first world, the world of God's counsel, in which not Adam is first, but Christ is first. And God in history is going to realize that world of which Christ is the firstborn through the creation of this first world of which Adam is the head and who fell through disobedience. Now, that's the idea of Scripture. Now, mind you, the Apostle here emphasizes the truth that we are created, but we are not just simply created as loose, independent, and apart creatures, but we are created in Christ, who is the firstborn. And that must certainly mean that as the firstborn, he opens up the whole idea of this new and eternal and heavenly creation in which also we are included, the church of Jesus Christ according to the election of grace. And that is what the apostle is talking about in the text. It also means not only that Christ is first and that we follow him into this creation, but it also means that it is in and through Christ that we have the right to become new creatures. And you know how that is, don't you? Christ, on the basis of his meritorious work, as our mediator, by his own precious blood, cleanses us renews us from creatures that are dead and corrupt and depraved in ourselves, as we are by nature. And he makes us to become new creatures through his spirit And word. And I think that that idea is also implied here in this expression. For we are his workmanship, we are that which was made by him, we are the product of divine hand created. In Christ Jesus. Christ implants new life in us. And with that implantation of new life, He also gives righteousness, He gives faith, He makes us spiritually conscious spiritually alive, so that we are, in Christ, a new creation, principally. Oh, it is not yet seen what we will be, but we see in principle already what God has in mind. We experience the life of the new creation in our hearts. We are living spiritual creatures. Not as the context describes us, as we are by nature dead and trespasses in trespasses and sins, and depraved, but alive with the life of Christ. That first of all, and I assure you that in contrast to that first creation, this creation is much more glorious for the reasons which I have already expressed. Now we ought to see next, of course, that when God created us, he had in mind a certain design. And that design is as eternal as God's purpose to create, and to create in Christ Jesus. And that design is that we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I might say in this connection that, of course, that was in part true also of man when he was created in the first instance. Creation in general simply functions according to the law that God created for each creature. For example, the sun. As a mighty man runs its race from one end of the heavens to the other. That's the way we experience that. That probably scientifically is not the way it is, but that's the way the Bible describes it. It His sun is, and I'm talking about the sun in the heavens, is like a strong man that is ready to run a race. But you and I know, of course, that that sun does not say in the morning, Well, now it's time for me to arise again and to give light upon the earth and to run my course through the heavens, and that when he gets to the west, and it's time for him to sink into the west, that he says, well, now my work for this day is finished, and now I'm going to retire. We all know the sun does not talk like that. It doesn't even speak. It doesn't think. It simply is a dumb creature that functions according to the plan and the purpose and the law of God for that creature. And the same thing is true of other creatures that God has made. The seed, for example, which has in it all the potential for a tree and for leaves and branches and fruit, That seed as it is laid into the soil does not say to itself, Well, I think with some rain and sunshine I will sprout and I will bring forth a tree with delicious fruit. Seed is a dumb creature. And it is entirely dependent upon the providence of God to give unto it the proper climate, and the proper conditions for it to grow of itself. And that's rather striking when you read the Genesis narrative in regard to the creation. You read, and the tree had seed in itself that could bear forth fruit in itself. It was the function of that seed to grow under proper circumstances into a tree and to bring forth fruit. It is the function of a tree that operates according to the law of God. You cannot say that that tree or that sun or any other creature that is dumb and intelligent works it simply functions according to the law and the manipulations of God who created it and controls it in his providence but with man there was something else not only did man was man created in the image of God and in his likeness but he was created an intelligent intelligible, working creature, that man was created to work. And understand well, not as a robot, so that God created a machine that simply moved when God pressed a button and made it manipulate, oh no. He was a rational, moral creature who operated by his own mind and by his own heart intelligently and in response to the commandment of God. God said unto him, not only be fruitful and multiply, but have The government of the whole creation. That's your job. You go to work. But that man fell. And when he fell in sin, he did not cease to work, even though he died spiritually the day that he ate of the fruit. He still continues to work with his depraved nature. And all his works are evil continually. All he can do is sin. Contrary to certain common grace theory, all his works are evil. He can do no good. That's Scripture. And when God recreates, He creates a man in Christ Jesus who again works, but good works. That was God's design. He made a creature that was capable of performing good work. What are good works? I have no better answer to that question than that which is provided by our Heidelberg Catechism in answer to question 91. What are good works? The Heidelberg Catechism answers, Good works are those which proceed out of true faith. are done according to the law of God and unto His glory. Those are good works. Only those are good works. Those works which proceed out of true faith, you understand, that faith that has been wrought in us through our recreation that was given to us in seed form in regeneration in which all of our salvation is included principally. That faith which is brought into consciousness through the preaching of God's Word and by the operation of that preaching of God's Word upon the heart of the sinner that is elect. Faith is not only a potential, a power, but it is also an activity that is wrought by the Spirit and Word of God in us so that we actively believe. And in that active belief, We work the good works which God has before prepared in order that we should walk in them. They are those works that are in accord with God's holy law. And that must certainly imply, beloved, that they are those works of which he is always in approval. They meet up with his holy will. Those are good works. They are good works which are done with a view to the glory of God, not the glory of man. And I believe that that definition is as comprehensive as you could possibly conceive of it. And at the same time, so positive that you can test every work in the light of that definition. If it does not meet up to the fact that it proceeds out of faith, it's not a good work. If it is not performed in line with the holy will and law of God, it's not a good work. If it is not performed with a view to the glory of God, it's an evil work. You can test all of our works and all of the works of men, if you want to, on the basis of that criterion, of that definition. And undoubtedly when the apostle here speaks in the text of the fact that God has created us in Christ Jesus unto good works, that he has in mind specifically those works which would, in our experience, proceed out of faith, which He has implanted in our hearts as a gift of grace. Remember what we said in connection with verse 8? We are saved through by grace through faith. And that, not of ourselves, that faith is not of us. That, along with our salvation by grace, is a gift of God. It's all of Him. It's His work. It's the fruit of His work in us of grace. Faith is the implantation of the living God in our hearts. That's what it is. And our good works, which he has before designed, he gives unto us to perform through faith. And what I want to call to your attention before we go on is the fact that these good works as well as our salvation and our creation in Christ are also prepared eternally. And when I think of that, this is a tremendous truth. You and I are not generally accustomed to think of it that way. In our little bit of Arminianism that we have in each one of us, you know, we, we probably could lie awake at night thinking, trying to concoct up some kind of good works that we could perform the next day for the Lord. You know, And there are many Armenian preachers today who would encourage you to do that. They tell you, well, now, let's get busy and let's perform good works, you know, and everybody get on the bandwagon. We're all going to be busy doing good works. And then, of course, they give you all kinds of a whole big list of them to do. Mission work, Sunday school work, community work. All kinds of works, you know, that you're given to do. I get it in the mail every week from headquarters downtown. All kinds of works that they want me to do. You know, if I'd listened to it, I couldn't be your pastor anymore. I'd be busy seven days a week, week working for the organization downtown. They keep you busy doing all kinds of works. I mean that. I'm not fooling. All kinds of works are prescribed for you. And there's always this danger that this pulpit also will dictate all kinds of works for you to do. And if you can't think of them, you come to the parsonage and we'll think them up for you. That crazy idea has been injected into the life of the church and the thinking of the church. And a lot of people, of course, get busy. Doing prescribed works that men have prescribed for them. Oh, I want to tell you something tonight. This is tremendous. Every good work which you have ever performed or ever yet will perform was already prepared for you from everlasting They were all ordained, and that word here that is translated ordained here really means prepared beforehand, prepared beforehand, so that it is like this, that God not only determined eternally to create us in Christ Jesus, and unto good works, with a design in mind that we would perform the good works, but he also eternally determined the good works we were to perform. Those works, Which he determined should proceed out of faith. That would be performed according to the law of God. And that would serve unto his glory. He prepared. You know, it's pretty hard perhaps to understand that, but I think maybe we could even illustrate it with a homely earthly illustration to make this idea go across. You take for example an inventor, one who has a mind for inventing some new something new, a piece of machinery, let us say. Let it be a typewriter. Now, it took quite a bit of ingenuity to think up all the mechanism of a typewriter, and then, of course, to put it together. But everyone knows—I'm sure you all understand that—that when a man invented the typewriter, he didn't simply uh, have in mind of creating just a dead machine that would stand someplace on a shelf in a store building. No, no. He had in mind that there would also be people who would operate that machine and put it in motion. Here's a man who is a musician. With his mind, he composes music. Let us say an oratorio, like Handel's Messiah. This man doesn't just simply sit down and put a whole lot of notes together that harmonize, that bring out a certain melody that he has in his soul. But he puts it in various voices altos and bass, tenors and sopranos and also some in between. And he composes it so that eventually there may be a great chorus, many hundreds of peoples, that will learn the notes and the music and the melody and the words and express it. One thing along that line of thinking. God. I don't want to call him the great inventor or the great musician. But the great God, the almighty eternal God, Not only conceived of a new creation in Christ, but of you and of me as belonging unto Him and being partaker of His life. And He prescribed the manipulations just as the man who created the typewriter created a people that would respond unto His grace in all good works which He performed for them to walk in them. That's the idea of our text. And when I think of that, what a tremendous God and what a tremendous wisdom and what a tremendous grace that He should choose me to respond in such a way that I walk in those works which He before prepared that I should walk in them. That's our challenge. Finally, this was all done, of course, with a divine purpose. <clears throat> and that purpose is expressed, as I said in the last part of the text, that we should walk in them. Our walk, of course, envelops our whole life <clears throat> in all of its departments. You and I are often tempted to segregate our life and put it in isolation, certain brackets. We have a life that we live on Sunday, a religious life, and on Monday, of course, we have a secular life, and if you're involved in business, probably an economical life or a social life. We have all kinds of lives which we are living, and we divide up our lifetime in all of these different departments. That's the way we do it. God didn't intend that, nor does he want us to put our life in all kinds of departments. The orb or the circle of good works is as wide as life itself. And these good works must be performed in all of the departments of life. It isn't so, you know, like we used to be taught when we were little kids, you got a Sunday suit that you hang up in the closet when you come home from church at night. And then you don't see it again until the following week. that may be true with a suit of clothes, but that's not the way life is. It isn't a matter of... Religion is not a matter of a day. It's of a life. We ought to understand that. I know how you do, and I know how I do, too. You know, today we sit in church, very pious, faithful in our attendance, we sing with robust voices, and we are also active in prayer, you listen studiously while the minister preaches, And bye-bye, you get out and you go through the motions of having communion and fellowship with the saints. You shake hands and you say goodbye and you go home. And tomorrow morning, you're in a different world. You can forget all about what you heard today and what we did today. We're in a different world. We're in the world! That's the way you and I live. Oh, you better confess it. That's the way is. It shouldn't be that way. There are no departments in life. All the works which God gave us to perform were not those good works we perform on Sunday when we go to church and when we pray and when we give to kingdom causes. But our life is also tomorrow at the shop, in the business, in the school, or on the street, wherever we are called to be tomorrow and the next day. And in all of the tomorrows that are to come, God has prepared works, good works in order that we might walk in that. And here's where our spirituality comes in, don't you see? Here's where your spiritual sensitiveness comes in. And here also comes in this whole matter of making spiritual progress. You want to know whether you're making spiritual progress in your spiritual life? And all you have to do is look at the works in which you are walking. Are they the good works which God has before prepared in order that you should walk in them? Then your whole life will be a manifestation of a living faith rooted in the Word of God. Your whole life will be in harmony with the will and the law of God. And your whole life will be unto his glory. Nothing else counts. Nothing else figures in. You don't think about yourself. You think about your God. You understand? that's my text. You say, preacher, I can't live that way. Maybe you think you can't live that way because you have a great old man that has to go along with you when you walk in those good works you got to drag him along with you wherever you go when you walk in good works. You have to say, old man, get down, behave yourself, don't you dictate to me, don't you take me off of my path that I must walk. That's what Paul means by putting off the old man with his deeds and putting on the new man, which in Christ Jesus is created unto all good works, unto true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That's our calling, beloved. And let me say it closing, when God de- determines us, creates us in Christ Jesus, and creates also our works and prepares them for us to walk in them, He doesn't treat us like so many robots that simply respond to a press of a button which He pushes. But He treats us as living, rational, moral, spiritual creatures who are capable, by His grace, to respond. And so we say, in closing, evermore, O God, give unto us those works, and cause us to walk in them only. And we confess before Thee that We fail miserably. Often our old man has the supremacy, and we are deterred from the path of righteousness and truth. But we look forward to the day when we shall be able to walk in all good works perfectly forever. Amen. Our Father, would Thou sanctify to us Thy word in such a way that we may be edified and strengthened in the inner man and more perfectly equipped to realize the calling which Thou hast given unto us. And we thank Thee that in this evening we might hear how great Thou art and how wonderful is Thy grace toward us that Thou hast been mindful of us from everlasting Not only having chosen us in Christ, but ordained us in Him, created us in Him, unto works which thou hast also prepared, that we should walk in them. And presently we shall see thee face to face, and thou wilt say, Come ye faithful, enter into my joy and into my glory, which I have prepared for you, also from before the foundation of the world. And we shall give thee thanks forevermore. Amen.